everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Emma. And I'm Joelle. Today we are joined by Fia Salter, an associate professor of psychology at Davidson College, researching cultural, psychological, and critical race perspectives to inform her work on collective memory, social identity, and systemic racism. In 2018, she was awarded an Outstanding Teaching and Mentoring Award from the Society for Psychological Studies of Social Issues, a professional organization that advances the integration of activist scholarship and public policy. Informed by critical race, her work highlights the relationship between systemic racism and engaging or disengaging Black history. Professor Salter, thank you for joining us today. It's a privilege to speak with you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your upbringing. You earned your BS degree in psychology at Davidson College and your MA and PhD in social psychology. Um, how was that experience and how has it led you to your current career? Oh, yes, that's a great question. So, you know, at Davidson, I really had an idea that I wanted to be a psych major, but I wasn't really sure. And then I kind of got discouraged at the time because there weren't exactly a lot of psych classes that were really dealing with race and culture at the time. And so I kind of dipped my toe in sociology and other forms of ethnic studies. But then I came across the class African-American psychology at the time. And so that kind of let me know that I could really bring together my interests in culture and race and psychology. And then from there, I just continued to study um, that topic. How has your students um, teaching at Davidson College helped inform your research on critical race theory? So the students at Davidson are very interested in bringing together all kinds of perspectives. And so many of our students will double major or take classes outside of their major and kind of bring those or integrate those perspectives. And so I'm always excited when I have students come into the class who are you know, political psych majors, political psych, political science majors, history majors, public health majors, um, coming into the class and asking tough questions around race and being able to um, really discuss with them how psychology has something to say about some of those conversations or even maybe limited in some of those conversations and how different perspectives can come together to fill in some of those gaps. And so, yeah, just the different interests that the students have will point me in, in different directions in terms of research and topics like critical race theory. So I was reading some of your research on the Marley hypothesis and um, the epistemologies of ignorance um, that you've researched. And so, you know, in recent debates of critical race theory and censorship, how should we use psychology to reframe these debates about education? Another tough question, <laughs> but a great one. I honestly go back and forth in terms of whether we need to reframe because sometimes in reframing, it's kind of, uh, it's almost as if we're relenting as if this is a negative thing. That if we just say it in a different way, if we just frame it in a different way, then people will come around and be more receptive to the message. And sometimes that works, but if the 
critique of, for example, critical race theory or woke education, like the framing of it isn't the problem because people just keep shifting what their problem is with educating people about our, our actually documented history, then I don't know if reframing is the strategy to take because shifting from um, the, the terminology kind of suggests that there's something wrong with it. And I don't think that there is. I think that understanding what critical race theory is and understanding the, you know, the theoretical assumptions that might come with it. We can maybe disagree on whether you believe those assumptions, but I think to reframe um, may not necessarily get us where we want to go. On the other hand, I do also... um, I'm, I'm empathetic to the idea that we should try to bring in as many people as we can and that language can be a, a bridge to perhaps facilitate some understanding. So um, I go back and forth on, on that. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of wondering, you know, I'm, I'm interested in academia, but I guess like I wanted to seek some advice from you on how it's been to navigate that space and still be able to research, you know, the topics you're really passionate about. Um, So what's your advice for, you know, students who want to pursue activism through academia um, but are kind of unsure about the the climate, the elitist climate of it? Yeah, another great question. So I guess my advice would be to honestly pursue your your passions and to just go full steam ahead. Sometimes ideas seem controversial or they may seem risky, but with time, then those ideas are the norm and what everybody's doing and how everyone's talking about these different issues. And so it's scary, definitely, um, to pursue... um, activism in a climate where people are being willfully ignorant about um, some social justice issues and and making change. But at the same time, if you don't do it, then who will? So, uh, yeah, I would just encourage you to, you know, keep going forward with it. Love that. Um, Kind of a similar question. So for researchers, how do you um, choose the topic you want to study about? Like, how do you navigate um, with those like discourse and choose a topic that you're most comfortable researching and talking about? Yeah, um, choosing a research topic for me has really always taken inspiration from what's going on in the real world or in my life or in the lives of people I love and care about. Um, So while the topic is scholarly and academic, most of my work really starts from a place of observation of how black people are experiencing the world, um, including myself, um, but then also people um, that I'm close with, or sometimes it may come from something I see in the news or you know, something a student may bring, bring up. But for most of my work, it, the inspiration comes from what's happening in society um, at that time. Um, I guess personally, I'm interested in um, healthcare equity. And so I think it's like really interesting that 
Uh, race is a particularly new subject to be including within health outcomes. And, you know, from a psychology perspective, how do you see um, healthcare as intertwining with more of your like theoretical historical work, um, you know, dealing with mental health and, and histories of, of um, increased social determinants of health? So I'll, I'll say that there have certainly been scholars who have been ringing the alarms on social determinants of health and how racism um, has been impacting mental health, physical health, all of those different outcomes. Um, David R. Williams is a person who comes to mind uh, for me. But um, in terms of my own work, sort of integrating perhaps health disparities or, or thinking about how historical knowledge may, may play a role. Um, I, I both think about, um, so earlier I mentioned that I take inspiration from what's going on. So one of those projects that I have that's ongoing right now is looking at how people explain racial disparities in COVID. And right, obviously that came from this ongoing global pandemic that we're all experiencing but it was also inspiration in how people seemingly were blaming black folks for uh, experiencing worse outcomes. So is it access to health care? Is it um, you know, something about um, the structure in terms of how wealth and poverty may be shaping um, different outcomes? And so in that work, you know, just ask people and people range from, you know, understanding that structure plays a role in, you know, referencing systemic racism and sort of a history of bias or even experiences of mistreatment within the healthcare system and how that may influence. Um, but it also ranged to people drawing on biological reasons that really does seem to border on scientific racism and really assuming some problematic uh, things about the biologies or physiologies of black folks. Um, and so that's one way my work on systemic racism has engaged with some of these questions around health. Um, I haven't looked at the history um, aspect in that domain, but I think, you know, it's a fruitful direction for thinking about what we know about African-Americans' experiences in both science, public health, right? I think for, for many people, Tuskegee comes to mind and how uh, African-Americans' relationship with the government and how it has treated them in the healthcare um, is something that is information that gets passed on from generation to generation. And so those things can, you know, they're not wholly determinant of whether black folks might see seek out healthcare, but you know, that, again, that documented history of deceiving um, black Americans on, um, you know, within the Tuskegee syphilis studies on their status um, in terms of disease is real. And, you know, whether you, um, how that impacts the decisions you're making um, is something that we should pay attention to. 
Um, a following up to that question, like the decisions we're making um, because of that situation, what do you think are some of like possible solutions that you kind of see, find out through your research on that problem? Yeah, so I think one easy initial step is to acknowledge that it's not full out, it's not paranoia, right? If we can talk about that, the relationship between black community and the government and healthcare has been one that's fraught in our history. Um, and acknowledging that um, to you know really affirm people's experiences and what they know to be true, I think can go a long way in facilitating trust and facilitating a more positive experience. And when people, you know, so that's historical, but even in contemporary times, when people are experiencing, you know, racism in their, um, um, when seeking medical treatment, again, af affirming that it's not crazy to think that someone isn't paying attention to your pain when they're not. And we, you know, there are psychologists who have documented that people tend to think that black Americans can handle more pain. And so they're less likely to be prescribed drugs that might help alleviate some of that pain. That's real. So if we can, you know, it's, perhaps it's a bare minimum in terms of working towards a solution, but I think really acknowledging uh, those relationships and then working to re-educate, right? So if medical doctors have this belief and then they're acting on those beliefs, that's going to impact the outcomes that people are having. And so if we can also um, work on um, uh, educating um, different health prof professionals on systemic racism, structural racism, and also how their own unconscious biases may play a role in how they see the people that they're treating. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that your um, some of your research focuses on the epistemologies of um, ignorance. Do you mind kind of going more into that? And just because I kind of struggle with like the responsibility of alleviating ignorance, like who who is supposed to be doing that? How are we supposed to be doing that? So could you explain that concept a little more to me? Sure. When I think of epistemologies of ignorance, I broadly think about how do we know what we know and how are we participating in unknowing as well? So when talking about epistemologies of ignorance, you know, ignorance is not only an absence of knowledge, but it can also be an avoidance of learning about things that might make us uncomfortable. So I think Right. What Governor DeSantis is doing in Florida is a prime example of trying to unwrite right, a history um, in a way that not only, OK, it's not just that he doesn't want to learn about these things or he doesn't want to engage with these things. He's also structuring the education system so that no one else can either. Um, and so that's yeah, that's that's well problematic, to say the least. Um, I, I might also um, add that, again, ignorance may seem like a dispassionate, I just don't know something. And I, you know, there's all, there's, there's an intellectual hum humility in admitting when you don't know something. And that's, that's great. That's fine. Um, but there's also motivated forms of ignorance that we encounter information that may not make us feel good, right? That kind of threatens our identities. And, 
you know, it's honestly in discomfort that we may show the most growth. And so, you know, I, when I'm thinking about my students, I really try to encourage that, like, just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's not worth doing, learning, because that might be an area of, of true growth. How does your own intersectional perspective um, with your identity, uh, your relation with race impacted or informed your psychological work? So I think all the work that I do is related to my identity, whether that is race or my gender identity. So I also have some work that looks at um, disciplinary disparities for black girls in school systems. Um, my collaborator, Jamelia Blake, and myself and others on the team, firsthand experience of being young girls who were told we have too much attitude or seeing um, someone talk out of turn, but it becomes a problem when I talk out of turn. I am defiant or I am, you know, I have too much attitude. And that's kind of a, um, a framing that is particular to how people see black girls. And also um, uh, adultifying them in a way where they're seen as having, they're too grown, right? They have too much attitude. And so there are certainly stereotypes about black boys and other groups that impact how they experience disciplinary disparities, but what's the mechanism and, and how that is um, manifesting and their experiences versus how it might be manifesting and girls' experiences can, can vary. And so thinking about both, at least in that case, both the gender and the racial lens together, um, hopefully is that, that works in progress. We're working on some of that um, and thinking about colorism and skin tone and how that also may interact or intersect with our different identities. Those things are, you know, always at the back of my mind. It's not just, you know, race is a, is a big problem and a big question. And some of the work I do do does just focus on race as a lens, but I'm certainly conscious of the ways in which within that large umbrella, there's different experiences based on sexual identity, gender identity, class, ability and disability. Um, it all it all matters. How does this type of unlearning inform, you know, your own coming to terms with um, living within, you know, a United States that was built on foundations of racism? Yeah. So I, th I think it kind of works in two ways. So as a as a black person, I see the disparities in wealth, education, health, criminal justice. And as an academic, the piece in education really sort of stands out to me. And so as a you know young black scholar, I might think about, oh, when I look around, there aren't a lot of people who look like me. I'm in a you know, if I'm attending a predominantly white institution, I might be one of a few people in a class. And so how I understand my presence as one person in a class, I can think about sort of an individualistic explanation. I can think about how perhaps other people don't work as hard as me, or I can tell this really kind of nasty story about how I am exceptional in my you know, working hard or whatnot. But there's also 
a way in which we might understand structure that then doesn't rely on me blaming other other people who may not be in the same circumstances as me or may not be in that classroom with me? What are the factors that may have influenced their educational experiences? What are the factors that influenced my own educational experiences? And thinking through then how do you come up with solutions? Because if it's just about someone not working hard, then you might just, maybe you think there's nothing that you can do. But if you're thinking that it might be structure, then you might try to identify what pieces of either a pipeline or what pieces of the educational experience is actually pushing people out and what are the consequences of that. On the other hand, I think that understanding both individual achievements and historical barriers go hand in hand. And in particular, understanding those historical barriers might be what really highlights those individual achievements as extraordinary, right? So when you're doing perhaps achieving with fewer resources or, right, you're facing racism um, or some other sort of, you know, tough times or, right, there can be lots of sort of barriers um, in someone's experience. But understanding those things can help you understand what makes those um, achievements really great. And so, you know, I, I, I see this sort of engaging with the past, particularly you might think that, oh, well, if we're focused on historical racism, it's, it's kind of a downer. Uh, it may make you, you know, feel bad about our, our past, but I think it's really in, important to understand that because it influences how we're explaining what's going on today and then also the solutions we might come up with. Awesome. Um, that's unfortunately all the time we have today. Thank you, Professor Sauter, for joining us. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry.